name is Allison Warner, and I am joined today by my co-host, Carrie Stevens. We are the co-chief editors of Plastic Surgery Practice. Thank you for joining us for today's podcast. Today, we are joined by Dr. Corey Moss, a board-certified facial plastic surgeon in San Francisco and the current president of the American Academy of Facial Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery. He is here to talk to us about the Academy's annual member survey released in February. Dr. Moss, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for Thanks. having me. Thank you. Well, let's just start with a simple question. What surprised you most about the findings in this year's survey? Well, I think it was the, the dramatic increase. It, it, I think we were all surprised, frankly, on the dramatic increase of 2020 over 2021. We saw a, a slow rise because of the uh, sort of paralysis that happened in, in early, you know, in the, in the spring of 2020. But then over the summer, there was a, a gradual increase, but it really exploded, you know, through the, the fall and winter with um, cases rising. And, you know, we're some, I mean, we're, we're talking 60, 60% or, or more increase and in some practices even more. Mm -hmm. And so that, that's, that's not a normal year over year increase in procedures performed. It's dramatic. Yeah. Well, talking about those procedures, the survey has the most common surgical procedures performed by Academy members in 2021 as rhinoplasty, faceless, and blepharoplasty. Is this consistent with previous years or was there a shift here? Um, I, I think it was, well, yeah, a little bit of both. The, if you just think about the overall number went up so so dramatically of all procedures, I, I, those stood out as being procedures that were um, were performed with greater frequency for, I think, a number of reasons, which we can get into them, but the mm -hmm. biggest yeah. one being the, probably the top two or three is number one, people were seeing themselves every day on Zoom, Microsoft Teams, whatever your video mm -hmm. conferencing thing is, mm -hmm. themselves in ways they may not have ever seen themselves before because mm -hmm. it's a different image than looking in your well-lighted mirror. Mm -hmm. uh, number two, people had nowhere to go they had no, nothing to spend money on. You couldn't go to restaurants. You couldn't travel. You couldn't even go to retail, frankly. So they started investing in themselves. And um, and then, the, you know, doctor's offices are safe. I mean, we all had policies in place. And, you know, I think our patients trusted us to to follow the CDC guidelines and, and maintain those. And, and certainly we did during that time period. And so there was no exclusion to doing these things uh, based on need or desire or whatever it was really something that um was a the perfect storm if you will for for those of us that do things so but, i mean it's a long answer but the short one is that if you're wearing in the fourth part was that you're wearing masks during this time and it's a great opportunity if you're wearing masks i mean people didn't even find it unusual to be on a conference call like what like a podcast here with a mask on it was yeah. okay you know, you could do that. Yeah. So you could function normally with a mask that disguises face. Certainly all of the facelift and rhinoplasty stuff is disguised. Mm -hmm. The one that's not is blepharoplasty. And, but that's a fairly quick recovery uh, type of procedure. You get a little bruising on the upper eyelids, but it almost looks like purple eyeshadow. So mm -hmm. uh, people aren't out for that. And then, you know, of course, the, the, the other big part of the explosion was in minimally invasive or non-invasive yeah. procedures too. It was... Yeah. Yeah, part. well, talking about the the minimally invasive procedures. So in the report, it was neurotoxins, so Botox, fillers, and skin treatments were the most common. Um, are those procedures still? Were those procedures in previous years 
at the top or has there been any shift in which procedures are kind of gaining traction there for the mentally yeah, so historically uh, so that you know as as they've uh as an under, as the science and understanding and comfort level with the public has increased every year year over year better better consumer awareness and 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 good messaging from both physicians and industry uh, there was a much greater comfort level with the cosmetic injections whether the, the botoxins that's disport uh, in this country disport zm and uh Juvo and and um uh, botox of, of course mm-hmm. the brand, branded well branded one but but also the fillers which uh were used uh, quite extensively and and became really there was a shift from from botox being the entry treatment to a younger group of people coming in and doing fillers in particular for lip enhancement mm-hmm. and that that was a shift but it was a, a pretty big number and i don't again what what uh, demo group they're in i i, I would I guess Gen Z or whatever the yeah. group is that that are in their twenties now, and they you know they were doing it and if if done appropriately, it's a very nice procedure. And of course, we've all seen the overdone people too. And there's a, been some pushback since that time where people were kind of overcooking it. But but in general, done correctly, they look really nice. And that that's that was a big change is that there's a a, a younger group in the twenties where Botox uh, people generally start in their 30s so a little bit younger group of people started coming in too do you mind i'm going to kind of circle to a different question we were going to ask later it was about this the report members um did report that there's a greater emphasis emphasis on earlier maintenance um and age prevention starting with the 20s and 30s that population you were just talking about so that they could put off bigger procedures and surgeries later on so in addition to you know the the lip um procedures, what other types of procedures is this age demographic doing to put off these procedures later on? Well, there, uh, look, the, the gr- this group is a very highly informed group who um, are very comfortable with, um, you know, with search and, um, and sort of dissecting out the hype from the reality and, and will come in uh, generally to the office, which um, with, with sort of self-propagated uh, education and it makes it a lot easier in many ways for us. It can make it a little more challenging so that you can't confuse Dr. Google with Dr. Moss, but mm-hmm. the idea is that there are, sometimes they get a misunderstanding. There's gotta be some filters there. Uh, but at the same time, that that group um, is also very much aware that these uh, some of these early interventions can prevent uh, some of the sun so you know, there's intrinsic and extrinsic aging Intrinsic mm-hmm. is very hard to manage because it's really your genes. I mean, other your skin type okay. that you can't really get to pick those things, but the extrinsic aging, things like smoking and sun damage, which are the two probably biggest things that affect skin. Um, they're, they're very conscious of skincare products and sunscreen. And we've certainly gotten away from that sixties and seventies, uh, trend that was really a very brief moment in human history because historically lighter skin has always been associated with more prosperity and not working right. in fields, if you will. And mm-hmm. it was really only a couple of decades where we saw this big bump in the tan sort of James Bond thing where you're tan and that means you have more yeah. free time and, and that's how you spend it. 
so that, that fortunately, because cancer, skin cancer rates have, you know, gone through the ceiling, uh, it's a cumulative uh, sun damage is a cumulative type of thing. And we can do certain treatments to help reverse that. And cert there are certainly topicals that can help, including the retinoids and L-ascorbic acid and whatnot. But mm -hmm. um, the, the, the treatments themselves go from, you know, sort of non-ablative uh, types of ablative, non-ablative laser resurfacing to particularly fractional laser because there's very little downtime, if any, to uh, micro needling or radio frequency micro needling in particular. Okay. Um, the, the micro needling where you just putting a roller on your skin probably doesn't do that much, but with, when you mm. have RF or some energy where there's a little bit of thermal injury, those, those particular went, went up quite dramatically. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. One of the things I want to talk about is a shift in the number of revision procedures and what procedures are being revised. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, I think so revision surgery is part of what we do, and it doesn't necessarily mean anybody did anything wrong. Sometimes revision surgery is just to get a little bit more of what you already got. It might be um, altering a little bit of what you've already done. Um, there are more people entering the, the field now, and I think there's this experiential component to it, which is has several layers. Um, the, the first layer is pr proper patient selection, you know, matching up the right patient for the right procedure based on their desired outcomes. And that's mm -hmm. generally where you have the happiest patients. If you offer, you know, if they have a concern and we're addressing it with the right procedure and that's part of the, you know, the cerebral portion that has nothing to do with how good your hands are. It really has to do with what the really f figuring out what the patient's looking for and trying to match up the procedure or procedures that would best address those concerns. Once you get past that step, you, you know, doing, if, if you can match them up, you're going to have a very low rate of revision if you execute well. And some of the things that I've seen, at least, you know, it gets to, it sort of stratified by that most, most challenging procedures are probably uh, rhinoplasty uh, in general is at the top because it's, it's a very, um, you know, you're, you're bl blending form with function and it's so individual. I mean, uh, what people want for the, that's why I, I always use computer imaging with our patients and mm -hmm. show them yeah. and get them. We, we come up with some mutually agreed upon uh, image that they're hoping to achieve. And, and if you get pretty close to that, then people are generally happy. But even with that said, the, the published rates of revision rhinoplasty primary for doing it for the first time are in the mid, uh, mid to upper single digit numbers. Not, not that many, but enough to be significant given the number that's done overall. If we're talking about revising a revision, so somebody's already had a surgery and uh, they're coming in for a secondary or tertiary um, rhinoplasty, it gets a lot more complex and it really does. I mean, this is where trusting your face to a facial plastic surgeon is the real deal because yeah. the, the, this group in particular um, has a lot of expertise in working on the nose and in and in and on the nose so that that's, there's a comfort level with that. And there are a lot of different techniques described. It's really about executing them. So I, I would say that was there was a big rise in, in revision rhinoplasty for the same reasons we've discussed is that people can get that procedure in revision rhinoplasty in particular, 
the swelling lasts a little longer than in primary rhinoplasty. And um, not, it's not dramatic, but it, you, the, the best results you'll see after six months to a year, literally. And so that, that means longer recovery. So people wearing masks was a good opportunity for, you know, something that's bothered them for a very long time if they had it when they were much younger, you know, with some of the cookie yeah. things they did in the 60s and 70s in particular. So, okay, I want to talk about men now. So in the study, you talked about how there was a smaller chunk of the patient population undergoing both surgical and non-surgical procedures, but members report that they believe there will be an uptick. And what procedures do you think men will be looking for specifically? Well, the obvious one is hair. So, I mean, hair restoration is unique to men. And that's not unique because I do a lot of hair restoration on women too, but that I really start both with men and women on medical hair restoration. And we do have some very good pharmaceuticals that are very helpful and in, in particular retaining hair, but also growing new hair. And, and, you know, then probably a close second, or, you know, if you include the, the younger population in particular, because rhinoplasty is done in men and women, typically around high school or college age range, um, there was some question, I got some, dealt with a bunch of questions yesterday about how early you can do rhinoplasty. And generally that's going to be, uh, you know, middle school aged kids that are 13 or 14. They're mm. it's pretty much fully yeah. grown by that age and it, it doesn't have any impact on their, um, you know, on their, the, their growth of their face or facial, um, symmetry or anything beyond that. Um, and, uh, an eyelid surgery for men, uh, is, has always been, really at near the top of the list because hooded skin uh, makes you look tired. That's mm. sort of boardroom thing. And that's why, you know, they talk about Botox in the boardroom. It's part of that is softening the features around the eyes. And even as our papers we published in the early 2000s showed you can do substantial brow lifting and, and people just doing Botox. But those are areas where men are feel the most comfortable, I think, coming in. And, but once they cross the threshold, they just like women start talking about everything, you know, they lay out what their concerns are, but those are the threshold crossing type of procedures. <laughs> well, when it comes to the future of non-surgical procedures, um, members are reported that they expect there to be more choices going forward, especially when it comes to body contouring for fat reduction and skin tightening. What procedures or technologies do you think are going to be at the forefront here? Well, cl clearly, right now, I think the um, the fat, the thermal uh, thermolysis, fat thermolysis, the the cool sculpting and uh, non-invasive body contouring uh, mm -hmm. procedures are leading the way as alternatives to even though technically liposuction can be minimally invasive depending on the patient. Um, those, those procedures work very well and they're reliable. And now we even have body toning with some of the electromagnetic energy devices that can work on literally doing gluteal tightening, but the butt muscle tightening, um, there's, you know, M sculpt and cool tone out there that are both working this basically the same type of there's sub subtle differences, but same technology. And those are being used for abs. And so you get the fat removed with freezing the fat and preserving the skin, of course. And there is some skin tightening that happens with those procedures that we don't see in liposuction. I don't do body liposuction yeah. myself other than to 
to harvest fat for facial grafting, but I have done it in the past. But there's a, a quite a remarkable um, sort of a inflammatory response that gets a little skin tightening for patients, and then you add those to uh, the, to the toning of the muscles, and then some of these uh, skin quality improvement treatments can be applied to the skin, like radiofrequency and and doing things like shape or microneedling. Uh, what, uh, uh, what I said, shape uh, is a bipolar radiofrequency or thermage, which is monopolar radiofrequency, are things that can tighten skin anywhere. So uh, you really have got all three levels. You know, you've got the fat, you've got the body toning and muscle tightening, and then you've got the treatment of the skin quality, which historically was never done off body. You know, we couldn't do deep chemical peels and things like that, or even certainly not ablative laser on the body. Now with fractional laser, you can, I've got, lectures on whole body fractional laser resurfacing. You don't do it all at once, by the way, but you can, you can do it in seconds. <laughs> That's good. That would be interesting. Okay. okay, this is interesting. And while the report also notes the increase in bookings and treatments for both surgical and non-surgical treatments in 2021, you know, what's the outlook for 2022? What can we expect this year? Well, well I'm not seeing any, any decrease. I think there's a lot of... Um, inertia that we have going now and there's still some of the headwinds for people um in terms of travel and uh you know there's a a certain fear factor out there the pandemic for all practical purposes Mm -hmm. is over at this point um i'm not saying you don't take it seriously i mean omicron you should get a booster and that that's the best way but it's really for for most people who are boosted or have already had the, the the virus um, it's not much more than a cold if you get it. There are very few hospitalizations and deaths. All that said, uh, there's a layer of caution that everyone has and certain fear factors. I think people are still and some some people very resistant to to travel. And so there's there's a lot of uh, still, you know, if, if you're going to spend your money, why not invest it in myself? You know, this is something I, don't, I can feel safe about and yeah. uh, something that I always wanted to do. So I, th- I think those those are driving a lot of the continued interest, the inertia that I said started in the, you know, during the heart of the pandemic, really, and the mm-hmm. mask wearing and, and the Zoom calls and all that. Yeah. Well, I wanted to shift gears just a little bit and talk a little bit about um, who responded to the survey. And one of the things I saw was that the number of um, respondents who reported being in solo practice was slightly down from 2020, about 5% lower at 47%. How has the way a plastic surgeon practices changed in recent years? Is there a movement towards group practices or corporate, or is the solo practice still primarily where it's at? I think that, yeah, it's, it's a very good question. I, what I think that the, the trends in general, there's not a great deal of increase in academic mm-hmm. programs, um, yeah. uh, you know, which, you know, have certain, certain limited faculty, you know, the, the certain number of faculty they have. Um, but there are certainly a lot of economies of scale in sharing expense, overhead expenses and things like that, which takes mm-hmm. a lot of the pressure um, you know, off the whole business model, if you're sharing expenses with others and there's a synergy of referrals within a practice, 
it just makes group practice. When I say group practice, everybody has their own areas. This is a pretty broad field if you're talking about everything from, you know, breast lifting and breast augmentation and, you know, mommy makeover all the way to rhinoplasty and eyelid surgery. And very few people can be experts at all of those things. I mean, it's just too broad of an area now. So, you know, having, um, having practices where people get plastic surgeon and facial plastic, for example, are, are very common and very good uh, partnerships and, uh, you know, whatever, however their expense sharing works. So we're seeing more of that type of group practice and even some, some increase in multidisciplinary where you'd have a derm, a dermatologic surgeon or a derm uh, person involved. Uh, the report notes that the majority of the facial plastic surgeons who uh, reported as part of this survey were between their 40s and their mid-50s, and the percentage of younger surgeons dropped considerably since 2018. Now, the findings from the report note that it's hard to say if this is the number of younger members are actually decreasing um, given the number of respondents, but are you seeing any trends in the profession about the number of new doctors entering the field? No, I think the numbers are in the field are increasing. I think that like any um, organizational um, membership type of group, what, what we're seeing is, especially with the young people, is how do you spend your money? And mm-hmm. if you're going to invest it in your practice, you have to decide, you know, how to out, you want to buy that new machine or hire that new employee, or do you want to, you know, I mean, the, obviously, a, a, being a member of an organization is not going to be a, a bank buster or anything. Mm-hmm. They're, they're just like any business. If you're not getting a good return on your investment, then it's probably something that you have to work on. I think we're having, and in general, this is happening across a lot of industries and, and even, you know, churches and other things like that, where they're seeing fewer and fewer young people. And um, just because they, you know, they're how they spend their time and, you know, and, and in their free time and then how they spend their work time uh, and how they spend their money are all important. And uh, there's a real value proposition with, you know, with membership in organizations in general. So it's really one of my jobs as president of the, this organization is to try to make sure we're getting our young people, our fellows and and, and other young people that are uh, interested in facial plastic surgery. It doesn't matter if you came from plastic surgery or otolaryngology, fellowship train uh, or not. If you're doing this, we want members to to see the value, and and that that comes down to only a few things for membership organizations. It's do you are you driving interest through your the branding of your your specialty? Are you driving interest through, to the consumer through good consumer education, which Nowadays, a lot of the young people just feel like they can do this whole thing themselves. They got social media, they've got all kinds of outlets to do it. And it's not just through the organizations where they can get their name out there. In fact, they can be very effective with uh, clever marketing platforms on their own. There still is the, the synergy of working together and the group meetings and sharing knowledge because the, the field is evolving quickly and educational programs, I think, are critical for all of us. You know, continuing medical education is how we all stay on our top of our game. And uh, at the same time, there's more and more meetings out there and they're good meetings. 
So mm -hmm. what, that's what we see. And I, I, you know, our part of our job is making sure that the member for their dollar paid for membership, they're getting a, a good return. So that's a professional side thing. It has yeah. very little to do with the consumer, but, but it has to do with the younger group that's smart about in, investing their money. I mean, yeah. that's really what it comes down to. Yeah, exactly. Uh, do you guys have any meetings coming up that members should know about? Yeah, we have our uh, meeting coming up in May uh, 18th in Miami, and uh, I think it's the 18th. And that's our um, we're we're combining our aging face and rhinoplasty uh, courses, so they they're going to be running uh, sequentially. And uh, it's it's really an international group. It's a great city, and we've got really good registration. There should be a lot of, and it's by the way the first real real meeting we've had live in almost two years. So there should be a lot of, a lot of good to see, good to see colleagues and friends. And then of course, our, our national meeting, the annual meeting is in uh, DC and at national Harbor, which is a, a, a new area, the DC um, metro area where there's a great part of town and, and really close to the inside the beltway thing, but still it's a great meeting site. So I think what we're we'll we'll be seeing a lot more young people. I I've uh, personally taken an, <laughs> an interest in making sure our fellows and residents for sure are there because you know this is a good opportunity for them to get to hear from some of the real masters that are that are in our field, not just from the U.S. But we have a lot of international people coming, so it's exciting. Excellent. That is really exciting. So this is kind of more of a broad question, but. What is keeping up plastic surgeons at night? What are the key issues that y'all are just saying, ah, you know, they're just really. Well, we're like everybody else. I mean, inflation yeah. is crazy. I, I can tell you that the cost, of, uh, the cost of medical equipment and supplies and even its ability to get to us. I mean, we're, we're ordering, uh, we're over ordering things like, you know, things as simple as sutures and, uh, mm -hmm. And uh, certain other like, uh, drapes and things that you just wouldn't even think masks for a while they're much better now. But I mean, it, it, we you have to bulk order them because they're back ordered, which you'd never think would happen. But those are, you know, in part supply chain things. And and then when you do buy them, they're probably twice as expensive as they were a couple of years ago or even a year ago. So that the you know that managing those costs are are substantial for us and then if you start getting into the equipment side of it it really you know these medical equipment is already really expensive so right. you know and their costs are up too so building things so so it's really about managing cost i think that's probably the things that you know we kind of gnaw, gnaw our teeth on all of us want to i you know if, if they're like me i want to employ as many good people as I can to help care for our patients and, and, uh, you know, kind of, I think successful businesses are making every effort to, to get people back in the workforce to, to help us all get back to productivity that we should be. And I'm, I mean, you know, I'm in a lucky area in the Bay area. There's, you know, so much wealth here and, and, uh, so many people can work from home in tech and biotech that, um, that it's, it makes it sort of easy for me. I, I shouldn't, I, I don't want to knock on wood. I want to jinx myself, but, but in other areas of the country, it's not the same. You know, we just have, uh, they're, they're super busy. The tech giants that are all out here, Google and Facebook and Apple and, you know, Twitter, all of them are here. So they're, um, I mean, they're moving too now. I mean, they're also expanding and they've got offices going up in Texas and Florida and the lower tax states. So we're, 
but but still the epicenter is all here. So we're fortunate here. That some some parts of the country, I think they're they're facing a little more challenges as costs go up, and you know it's really hard to raise prices very much on patients right. that are just coming out of a pandemic. You know, it's that's a, a tricky job. Yeah, that's really interesting. That is not what I thought you were going to say, and that it definitely is really. A lot of good food for thought, but okay. To end this on a really positive note, what excites you most about the profession? Well, I think it's always been the same for me. It kind of gravitated from my professorship for 12 years at UCSF uh, at the University of California, San Francisco here, where, you know, I was probably 50, 50 doing reconstructive and, you know, trauma and facial nerve injury and some things and, and then cosmetic, but all of them in the end, um, give us an opportunity to help people feel better about themselves and improve their self-image in meaningful ways. And um, people who get nice, and I'm not talking about the um, any, this is when you, when you provide somebody a natural uh, rejuvenation of their, of their look so that they can restore the, the look or balance to their features that, that they haven't had that that really makes them feel more confident and comfortable and and uh, that self-image and the energy you see out of it is very rewarding and they're very thankful i mean it's it's a very gratifying um space to be in for in, in business because people are very appreciative uh, so that's that's always that always makes it fun if you can deliver and and people are happy about it and let you know so and they generally do we got some got some great people in this country so it's a nice feeling <laughs> excellent well dr mass thank you so much for joining us today we really appreciate your insight on the into the report and the future of the industry so well, thank you yeah well your podcast is cool i'm glad you invited me to come on thank you be happy to join you yeah, whatever you want we would love to have you. <laughs> well we look forward to talk to you again in the future and to our listeners thank you for joining us we will be back soon for the next plastic surgery practice podcast in the meantime visit plasticsurgerypractice.com for the latest industry news until next time take care